0: The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre. Part 2. The Rebirth. Ethics. Ethics is the philosophical study of good and bad, right and wrong. The word ethics is commonly used interchangeably with the word morality. However, ethics differ from other aspects of philosophy in being more concerned with what should be rather than what actually is. And this makes ethics a question which is a great deal more slippery as well. To better understand ethics, we're going to discuss three ethical theories. We will begin with the theological theories, and then move on to moral relativism, and finally, moral realism. Theological Theories There are three broad categories of ethical philosophies. The first is theological theory. As the name tells you, these are moral philosophies that begin with the idea that what is right or wrong derive from God or some other higher power. The simplest theological theory is the divine command theory. This theory says, that God has revealed his will in the form of commandments that are made available to us through oral tradition, holy scripture, or church law. All we need to do to be good is to follow those commands. Most of the church fathers held such a belief, as do many religious people today. The divine command theory has a major advantage in its simplicity and solidity. A more complex theological theory is called natural law. Now the idea of natural law goes back to St. Thomas Aquinas and is a part of traditional Catholic philosophy. St. Thomas felt that God would not give us one set of rules through scripture and the church only to have them contradicted by our experiences and reason. Nature, as God's creation, is in complete agreement with God's moral commands. People who believe in natural law would point out that there are people from other cultures not exposed to our traditions of morality who nonetheless reason their way to the very same conclusions as to what is right and wrong. The difficulty with natural law has become obvious. Science does occasionally produce theories that are blatantly contradictory to Scripture, or at least certain interpretations of Scripture. And the church does occasionally produce events, like religious wars, the burning of heretics, the toleration of child abuse, that are blatantly contradictory with our common sense sort of morality. The difficulty with both divine command theory and natural law is that As society becomes more pluralistic, we come into more and more contact with a greater and greater variety of religious traditions, each with their own scriptures, their own traditions, and not all of those traditions agreeing all of the time. The majority of religious people are good-hearted souls who are reluctant to believe that God would condemn entire nations for not having been lucky enough to hear the right message. This feeling is especially poignant when people gain experience with very decent people of different religions, or even no religion at all. As long as we remain generous and humble, there is no real problem. But some people find themselves retreating to what some consider a defensive position called absolutism. Absolutism is a divine command theory. But without the generous and humble spirit. In other words, it's my way or else. You must accept and believe this singular version of biblical interpretation, and to deviate from our orthodoxy will condemn you to hell. In other words, it's my way or else. We have had many examples of absolutism in history, And we still have many examples today. Moral relativism Diametrically opposed to the theological theories are various forms of moral relativism. Moral relativism says that there are no universal moral principles. Morality is a matter of custom or opinion or habits or emotion. Now, there are a range of opinions here. Relativism is sometimes considered a form of moral skepticism, which would say that we never truly know what is good or bad. Others see relativism as a moral nihilism, which says that there, are, there simply is no such thing as good or bad, that good and bad are just words or misleading labels for other simpler things. One brand of relativism is called conventionalism. This says that what we call morality is really a matter of our cultural or social norms. What our traditions say is right or wrong, for whatever reason, Is right or wrong. Often along with that comes the idea that cultures and societies should not interfere with each other. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. But that is not necessary to believe in conventionalism. Another brand of relativism is called prescriptivism or imperativism, which looks at morality more in terms of power within a society. What we call right and wrong are essentially prescriptions as to what we want others to do, which we then enforce with the powers at our command. So we call theft bad so that we have a justification to put people who take our stuff in jail. Of course, it is inevitable that we will come across other societies who believe that what they want is their right, regardless of what we want. Or we come across situations where there are two subcultures or societal groups whose moral beliefs come into conflict. One of the difficulties of conventionalism is defining what constitutes a society or a culture and what, if any, are the rules of interaction between or among them. One solution. Is to reduce the culture or society to a culture or society of one, that is, to the individual. Now this is called subjectivism. Here, each person has his or her own morality. Individual morality may be a matter of individual beliefs or a matter of habit. But each person makes his or her own moral choices. That does take care of the problem of what is a culture, but it only makes the problem of the rules of interaction that much worse. Another brand of relativism goes even further. Emotivism says that what we call good and bad are just labels for certain emotional responses we have to certain acts. So if the idea of eating puppies makes you sick, you call it bad. If it makes you salivate, you call it good. If having sex with teenagers makes your day, you call it good. And if it gets you upset, you call it bad. Among my students, I sometimes find that Freshmen often bring with them their own hometown religious beliefs. They tend to really like the divine command theory, with a few absolutists thrown in for spice. But by the time that they are juniors, most of them have become relativists. Now, I am not alone in making this observation. Christian researcher Steve Henderson who has studied trends in both Christian and non-Christian colleges and universities, says that over the last 24 years of his research, Christian students who attended non-Christian colleges, quote, experience a decline in religious values, attitudes, and behaviors during college. In an article in Christianity Today, March 2006, Henderson wrote, quote, more than 52% of incoming freshmen who identify themselves as born again upon entering a public university will no longer identify themselves as born again four years later, or, even if they still do claim that identification, will not have attended any religious service in over a year. End quote. The hometown crowd often blames this change on professors, but it is more. A matter of exposure to the pluralistic mini society of college. The freshmen see that there are many people who disagree about one detail or another of their childhood moral codes, and yet appear to be decent people, or at least have not been struck down by thunderbolts. And so these freshmen, being decent folk, Begin to emphasize tolerance for the variety of moralities that they see. And relativism seems to be the best format for this tolerance. For example, if you were raised to believe that homosexuality is wrong, and yet you find many people who believe that it is okay, and some who think that it's the only thing to be, you may develop a live-and-let-live attitude that says, to each his own. But not everything is as innocuous as sexual preferences. There are people whose moral codes say that we must sacrifice chickens to the gods, or we must convert non-believers, or we must burn witches at the stake, or we must destroy the infidel. What then do we do with our tolerance for those who are intolerant? Do we let them be because of to each his own? What if we had done that when Adolf Hitler had his time at bat? Or what if Jeffrey Dahmer's neighbors decided that, well, if he wants to kill and eat his lovers, well, what business is that of ours? A sophisticated relativist would respond, however, by pointing out that this tolerance business really has no place in a relativistic moral theory. That tolerance itself is a moral value that one may or may not adhere to. So... If it is Hitler's moral code to exterminate innocent people and invade neighboring countries, it's our moral code to make him stop. No logical problems here. As you can see, though, relativism does take a risk. Relativism can become moral nihilism in the same way that divine command theory can become absolutism. Nevertheless, Relativism is the moral theory followed by the majority of people in the hard sciences, including the more experimental, physiological side of psychology. Moral Realism The third main category of moral theory is moral realism. Moral realism says that good and bad, right and wrong, exist in some fashion in this world, and independently of things like social customs, beliefs, or opinions. On the other hand, moral realism does not propose something as simple as a list of commandments delivered directly from the hand of God. Moral realism is the middle ground between the theological theories and moral relativism, and is the most common approach of philosophers. But, as is usually the case with the middle ground, it is not an easy position to take. The big question that moral realists have to answer is, how do we know good and bad? How do we recognize right and wrong? Because of the difficulty of this question, there are quite a few forms of moral realism. The first group of theories I'd like to look at are the rationalist moral theories. As the name implies, these theories view morality as something coming out of our capacity to think, to reason. Just like rationalist epistemology, the most basic form of rational moral truth Is the one that is self-evident. This is the theory of intuitionism, which is best exemplified by the modern British philosopher G.E. Moore. Just like the rationalistic epistemology, we can deduce from intuitions with formal logic. In other words, we can think our way to various moral principles. Immanuel Kant promotes just such an approach in what is known as Formalism. A particularly popular form of rationalist morality is called contractionarianism. It is associated with several influential philosophers such as John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau is responsible for the title and for the basic idea. He suggested that, Once upon a time, humanity was in a state of savage anarchy. Each person felt free to do whatever they needed to do to get what they wanted. However, the fact that everyone else was doing the same meant that no one was really ever free at all. Whatever time they weren't spending on getting what they needed would be spent protecting themselves from each other. So, says Rousseau, Our ancestors got together, sat down, and thought this through, at least metaphorically. More literally, certain ways of dealing with anarchy evolved over thousands of years. But the principle is the same. We each agree to give up some of our freedom to take whatever we want in order that we can all get what we need. And this is called the social contract. This idea of the social contract was very influential in its time, especially on the American and French revolutions. Our founding fathers quite literally outlined the processes of our government and the rights and obligations of the citizenry in a social contract known as the Constitution. We call our system democracy, but the Constitution limits our democratic freedom. The freedom of the majority, in order to protect the minority. And since you never know when it will be your turn to be the minority, this system has worked out quite well. The next group of theories, as you might suspect, are those founded upon a more empirical nature of the study of morality. Here, morality is something that we experience in some fashion. These theories are more naturalistic. The simplest theory is that we should perceive good and bad directly with a a form of a sixth sense that we call the moral sense. This is the brainchild of the Earl of Shaftesbury. We often say to each other, you know, that, that doesn't look right. Or can't you see that that's wrong? Egoism says that right and wrong can be perceived in terms of certain special feelings that we call happiness. Now, the term egoism is really unfortunate here because we tend to think of ego in terms of selfishness and hedonism, which would be more appropriately placed under the subjectivist or emotivist form of relativism. The Epicureans are examples of egoism. Things like friendship, honor, and even altruism give us certain positive emotions by which we recognize that they are good. Other things make us feel guilty or ashamed. Analogous to contractarianism in the rational view, there is utilitarianism in the natural view. Invented by Jeremy Bentham, And developed by James Mill and more famously his son, John Stuart Mill, utilitarianism is best known for the phrase, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Like egoism, happiness is seen in a way in which we perceive good and bad. This time, however, it is not our own happiness alone, but the happiness of those around us as well. Intuitively, it is hard to disagree with this notion. But in fact, it is a difficult one. How do you know if others are happy? We're often not even certain if we ourselves are happy. And what makes others happy may not be the same as what makes us happy. How are we to do the math to add up the various kinds of happiness? Is every person equal in the equation? Or are some person's happiness more important than others? What about the poor minority in this case? Is it okay for them to be unhappy as long as the majority is happy? Bentham thought that we could develop what he called a hedonistic calculus, a way of figuring these things out. And others are far from certain About that possibility. Again, our founding fathers in America were influenced by utilitarianism as well as the social contract. The Declaration of Independence is loaded with utilitarian concepts and contractarian ones as well. Thomas Jefferson was in particular very interested in these issues. there is one more branch of moral realism to talk about and this one is called virtue ethics. Instead of looking at good and bad as something impersonal that we need to recognize via reason or a moral sense, virtue theory sees good and bad as a quality of a person, him or herself. It is a virtuous person who creates virtuous acts. Not good acts that add up to a virtuous person. This is often called perfectionism. It is found in a variety of interesting places. Aristotle proposed a virtue ethics in his famous Nicomachean Ethics. Buddha outlined a virtue ethic in his Sutras. Plato has a virtue ethics, as do the Stoics, and Friedrich Nietzsche promotes a virtue ethic in Thus Spake Zarathustra, the book that introduced Superman to the world. The idea is simple. Follow certain practices and you will become a virtuous man or woman. Then, being virtuous, do what you will, and the results will be good. Now I like virtue ethics a lot but I have to admit there is a danger in it. Who decides what constitutes a virtuous person? The Nazis read Nietzsche and decided that they were the master race who could do no wrong. Never mind that Nietzsche would never recognize his Superman in the boot-stomping black shirts. Certain passages in the Hebrew scriptures depict God as demanding the wholesale slaughter of entire groups of people along with their animals, and then later quickly forgiving the moral transgressions of people whom he liked, such as King David. Even the gentle Buddhists have had to face this problem. If a certified enlightened master Decides that it might be a good idea to sleep with one of his students or take all of their money. Does that make these things moral? To respond by saying that we were mistaken about his enlightenment is too easy of a way out of this dilemma. Another version of virtue ethics is called situational ethics. And this was developed recently by a Christian theologian named Joseph Fletcher. Uncomfortable with the follow these rules or you will burn in hell theology of some Christians, Fletcher said that Jesus had quite a different idea of morality. If you cultivate a loving attitude, Jesus taught, you will naturally begin to do more good And less bad. In fact, whatever is done with love is by definition a good act. Now, you could point out that some people do some pretty awful things in the name of love, but we would consider these mistaken examples of love. But you could also argue that this is an example of the no true Scotsman fallacy. If something good comes out of love, fine. But if something bad comes out of love, well, then it wasn't real love. And yes, each of those are true. But still, the idea of an inner transformation being the source of moral behavior, rather than public moral practice being a sign of some hidden inner virtue, remains compelling. Another aspect of this theory is that morality is always situational. And by this, Fletcher means that morality is always a matter of a real person in a real situation, and we really can't judge them from outside of that situation. Hypothetical moral situations, Fletcher says, are never real. There are always more details to be taken into account. Yet this vision of situational ethics sounded way too much like moral relativism to conservative Christians. And so today, many people misunderstand poor Fletcher and assume that he was some kind of nasty nihilist. Overlapping Moralities One of the things that you may have thought about as you listened to this discussion about morality and ethics is that these rationalist and naturalist theories are not terribly exclusive. In fact, we could combine them all without stretching them too far out of shape. Just like the United States has the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and just like science is a blend of rationalism and empiricism, we can use all six of the theories under moral realism at once. There are three overlapping moralities. To help clarify this, check out the podcast artwork at this point. You should see three overlapping circles, red, blue, and yellow. If you cannot see them or don't have access to the podcast artwork at this time, Just imagine that you and I have gone out drinking a tall frosty draft adult beverage at our favorite watering hole. So here we are, sitting at the bar, enjoying our draft, and I lift my mug to reveal a wet circle from the bottom of the mug on the surface of the bar. I set my mug down again, this time lower and to the right, and then lift it up and set it down a third time, lower, and to the left. When I lift it again, there are now three overlapping circles that we could call A, B, and C. These are the three overlapping moralities. Circle A represents the individual's morality, individual opinion. Circle B represents society's morality, or social convention. And Circle C represents true morality, the real deal. Now we need a moral actor, someone who can choose to act morally or immorally. So for this, we're going to use a morally ambiguous character, such as the owner of a puppy mill in Missouri, USA. Now for those of you unfamiliar with what a puppy mill is, it is a large scale dog breeding operation You might think of a livestock operation such as with cows or pigs or chickens. However, unlike cows or horses that get to roam in a field, the dogs in a puppy mill are kept in small cramped cages. Sometimes hundreds or more of these dogs are left without freedom to exercise, to even stretch out in these tiny cages, or be seen by a veterinarian when they become injured or sick. Often, the cages have wire bottoms, and they're sometimes stacked on top of each other. The wire on the bottom of the cage hurts the paws of the dogs inside. And if dogs are stacked, then when the dogs above have to urinate or defecate, it falls onto the dogs below. Consequently, dogs in puppy mills live in dirty, squalid conditions, where they never get to run outside or chase squirrels or play catch or live the life of a normal dog. Female breeder dogs in puppy mills are continually bred until they're worn out, and when they're no longer useful, they're destroyed. The puppies born to mothers in these puppy mills supply pet stores throughout the United States. They are often found for sale on the internet or perhaps simply being sold beside the road. Now you may wonder how such an enterprise could be legal in Missouri. Well, in fact, the voters of Missouri recently approved legislation that would shut down some of the worst puppy mill offenders. Unfortunately, many of the rural legislators in Missouri support puppy mills. One legislator, in fact, openly brags that he paid for law school with money from the puppy mill that his mother owns. So, after Missouri voters approved Proposition B last fall, Missouri legislators got busy gutting the new legislation. By the time that they were done, all of the major provisions that voters had approved to protect the dogs in puppy mills had been removed or changed. This legislation was then signed by Governor Jay Nixon. I guess you could say that Missouri's Republican legislators and Democratic governor treat their constituents like the dogs in the upper cages treat the dogs in the lower cages. And so, with that as our setup, we will choose as our ambiguous moral actor the owner of a Missouri puppy mill. Returning to our three circles, we will let Circle A represent our puppy mill owner and his personal moral opinions. Circle B represents the laws and social standards in Missouri, and Circle C represents true morality. The overlap of these circles and each circle individually gives us seven options. Option one is individual opinion only. The puppy mill owner believes that he can do anything he wants with his own property, including his dogs, something that many of his neighbors find a bit extreme. Option two, social convention only. Dogs must be registered with the state and given regular medical checkups from a qualified veterinarian. They must be fed nutritious food and have a supply of clean water. Although most people find this reasonable, it is something the puppy mill owner never bothers with. Option three, the overlap between individual opinion and social convention. Puppy mills are legal and accepted in the state of Missouri. Legislators work hard to see that puppy mills stay in business, which the puppy mill owner certainly agrees with. Option four, the overlap between individual opinion and true morality. The puppy mill owner believes that he has a moral duty to care for his elderly father, even though most of his neighbors would be just as happy to see the old coot croak. Option 5. Overlap between social convention and true morality. The state and most of the people of Missouri say that dogs should be treated well. The puppy mill owner doesn't always agree. Option six, true morality separate from both individual opinion and social convention. Cruelty to animals is wrong and should be eliminated, even though that is something that neither the puppy mill owner nor his state legislators nor governor nor many other citizens find acceptable. Option seven, all three. There are laws against murder, following general moral principles, and the puppy mill agrees that these laws should be upheld. Hopefully this helps to clarify how each of these circles overlaps with the other, and how the roles of different forms of morality interact. Also, You hopefully now realize that moral thinking is often difficult, but something from which we may not refrain.